do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow weak and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weak. And they will walk and not be faint. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. And we're going to get there in just a minute. But before we do, how's everybody doing this morning? Y'all good? Woo! Can we thank the, the band for just leading us in a great time of singing to God? Yeah. Uh, Kyle and Shelly, congratulations. I think Patrick mentioned it earlier, but uh, congratulations on your, your uh, wedding yesterday and bringing your family. Welcome, guys, from out of town. Um, we don't always welcome every single person from out of town, but there's like a lot of you, so I thought I'd say hey. Um, I met you all yesterday, too, so hi. Man, it's, uh, it's, it's so good to, to be in this God for the Rest of Us series, uh, what we've been going through the last few weeks. I want to start this morning, kind of put your mind in a, in a certain place, uh, and, and ask a question, kind of a rhetorical question for you to think about. Have you ever met a really famous or influential person? Like a really, really famous or influential person. I asked some of our volunteers that morning, and George and Kathleen actually won, because they were like, we met Jimmy Carter I was like, anybody else met a president of the United States? And people were like, no. Will was a guy. He said, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. I was like, it's close. But so there are some people who are just super influential. Uh, we live here in Wilmington, and a lot of times famous people come through here. Movies are made here. TV shows are made here, right? And so you might remember a couple years ago, Robert Downey Jr. kind of made his home here. Uh, that was like the big buzz, if anybody cared. Uh, they were filming Iron Man 3, and I think he had like a giant house that I could never get through the front gate somewhere, like Figure 8 Island is what I heard. It's the urban legend of where, you know, celebrities live, right? I heard that I saw him at McDonald's the other day, and he got two, two number one specials. Like, I don't know, but everybody has these stories. Like, I saw Robert Downey Jr. pumping gas. I saw him at Chick-fil-A through the drive-thru. And so these things come up. It makes good dinner conversation, right? And I love to tell a story about the time I met Gwen Stefani. Uh, you might remember her. She's the lead singer of No Doubt. Now she's just like a fashion diva, awesome person. She's like was one of my celebrity crushes. Who am I joking? She's still one of my celebrity crushes. And uh, my wife always rolls my eyes when I tell that story. I met her one time, and really it was like I saw her, and then her bodyguard pushed me out of the way. So it's not as cool as this when I, y'all met Jimmy Carter, I don't think. Um, but knowing influential or famous people uh, is very cool. And then knowing certain people has definite advantages. There's this phrase that we have. It is, it's not what you know, but finish it. It's who you know that matters. And that's why so many of you have had people write reference letters for you uh, for college or for jobs. Uh, you've had people give referrals. You've had to list certain people on job applications so they could call and find out if, you know, if you're good at your job or whatever. It's got perks to it because when you know certain people, it can get you in certain circles and it can get you certain jobs. And there are certain benefits to that, right? That's a good thing. Uh, I think that that phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters, is a place where I kind of want to start today. I think that uh, for about a month now, we've been going through this series, God for the Rest of Us, right? And I think it's been pretty good for us. I've got a lot of really good feedback on kind of the content of that. And the idea of the series is this, that you don't have to be completely perfect or all put together or overly super religious for God to love you. God exists for normal people. God exists 
for the rest of us. And so we've talked about the rest of us. We've spent a lot of time on that phrase, the rest of us. And so we talked about God for the hurting, God for the dysfunctional family. We talked about God for, uh, last week was what, the, uh, the hypocrite, right? We talked about God for the doubters and the skeptics. And so it's really been good to see that whole thing that God is for us, no matter what we've got going on in our background, whatever our baggage is. But what I want to do today is take that phrase, God for the rest of us. We've spent a lot of time on that last major chunk of that sentence and turn our eyes to the very first word, God. To give some validity to the phrase that God is for the rest of us. Because what does it matter that God is for us? I mean, who is God anyway, right? I mean, we could say fill in the blank, you know, the government for the rest of us, education for the rest of us, a new relationship for the rest of us, a better economy for the rest of us. we, We a lot of times try to put a lot of those things in that blank and it will fix our problems. So why is it that God matters? Why should we look to God? I think sometimes there's sometimes where you come to church and you hear a, a teaching time like this, and maybe you go to a class or a small group, and it's very important to talk about the felt needs of our life, what's happening in our family, what's happening with the, the world around us. But more often, we need to turn our eyes to who it's all about and realize it's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. Let's talk about this God today. Uh, to do that, I want to introduce you to a guy. His name's Isaiah. Uh, have you heard of Isaiah? He was an Old Testament prophet. He's the kind of person that a lot of people have heard about, but a lot of people don't know much about. So I want to introduce him to you today. Uh, Isaiah lived several hundred years before Jesus lived. He was a prophet, uh, which means he was a spokesman for God. God would kind of uh, speak to him, and he would share most often with kings, the kings of the nation of Israel. And uh, he lived at the time, if you're a history buff, this is the time in world history when the Assyrian Empire is basically wreaking havoc over the Middle East. They're taking over everything, including the nation of Israel. They've come through and they've taken over some of their major cities, and they're starting to hone in on Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the nation of Israel. Uh, And here's the deal. You can hardly tell the story of this guy, Isaiah, without also telling the story of what was happening with the, the world and the Assyrian Empire at that time and so here's part of it okay so the Assyrians they're taking over everybody and they come to this guy Hezekiah okay those are the only two names I'm going to really throw out at you right now there's Isaiah he's a prophet and there's Hezekiah I talked about him several months ago he was at this time the king of Israel so the nation of Assyria they come to Hezekiah and like they've done with every other king they say to him listen you need to bow down to us or we're going to come in and whoop your tail and take everything you've got. That's pretty much how they did. In fact, the way the Assyrians did it was if you didn't bow down, they burned you down. Everything. If you go look at the ruins of a, of a nation next to you and their capital cities, uh, many times what they would do is they would take the uh, soon-to-be-conquered leaders of that city and they would come and say, hey, we want to take you to show you something. And the Assyrians would put them in a caravan. They'd ride them out to the next country and say, hey, see that? See all that burnt That could be you if you don't bow down to us. Take him back home. We'll let you think about it for a minute. Well, Hezekiah's dad was the king before him, okay? And Hezekiah's dad had bowed down to the Assyrians and done everything they said. The problem with that was to bow down to the Assyrians meant that the Israelites had to give up their identity. The Israelites were God's nation. And everything that they did was based on the law that Moses had given. And there was all these different things, we won't get into it right now, that they had to do. In order to live the way the Assyrians wanted them to live, they'd have to worship their gods. They'd have to throw out their religious code. They'd have to uh, do all kinds of pagan, pagan things that, that, would, that would be completely defiling to them. Well, Hezekiah's dad didn't have a problem with that because he didn't want to burn down. But Hezekiah comes into play. And he says, we're not doing that anymore. We're not bowing down to the Assyrians anymore. Come what may, 
we're going to trust God. Now, that's actually the setup to tell you about Isaiah. Because Isaiah was the prophet to Hezekiah. If you read through Isaiah's whole kind of story, what you find is he spoke to many kings, and he was a prophet from God to many kings. And the kings that listened to Hezekiah did very well. That was mostly Hezekiah. And the kings that didn't listen to to Isaiah, they didn't do so well. The nation floundered, the economy died, and ultimately they were defeated. And so we're going to go back to Isaiah because he was the spokesman for God to the nation of Israel to this time. You, you, guys, you guys are good with history class now? We're done with history class. But I wanted to give you that because you've got to walk into some of these parts of the Bible with that background or it's just words. And Isaiah is a prophet. It turns out that Isaiah, uh, he had a, a, a pretty cool job. Uh, sometimes I feel like I pray and uh, it's like I don't know if God's listening. You know, you ever experienced that? And maybe my prayers are hitting the ceiling. Maybe you've given up on praying at some point because you're like, I prayed for this and it just didn't happen. And there have been times when I really feel like God has showed up in powerful ways. That's given me faith. I wish I had the relationship with God that Isaiah had. Because Isaiah was a man who had the ear of God. God would come to him and he would tell him things. And he was so faithful with it that God would continue to pour into him. He did it a whole lot. In fact, Isaiah has a really thick book in the Old Testament of the Bible called, can you guess what it's called? Isaiah, you probably know, right? And it's really thick. It's one of the thickest books in the Bible, and it's all the stuff that God told him. And most of it had to do with the nation of Israel, but a lot of it even had to do with prophecies about Jesus. Crazy stuff going on with Isaiah. This is the guy that we're going to step into, and and what we're going to do is we're going to look, as we think about this idea of God for the rest of us, I want to take a look at some person, a, a person from history, Isaiah, who really had influence. Remember, it's not what you know but who you know that matters. And you might know somebody who's like uh, the president of a country club or owns a chain of restaurants, and you might know someone who's a lawyer or a doctor, and that's got perks, right? Imagine knowing a guy who God speaks to regularly and clearly. I would want to go to that person and ask them one question. What's he like? What's, What's it like to hear from God? Like, what's that like? Fortunately, Isaiah wrote a lot of it down. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of just have a Bible study through Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. So if you've got a Bible today, will you grab it? Uh, Flip over to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, um, uh, there there are some that are scattered underneath the seats. Feel free to get online and use one. Also, if you don't have one with you or you can't reach one, that's cool. We'll have it on the screen behind us. I want to tell you, if you don't have a Bible today, uh, we give those Bibles under the chairs away we give them away for free. Uh, you can have them. So please take it home with you if, if you don't have a good readable Bible. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 40. And really, um, there's a lot of these times where we can come to church and say, I want something for me. I want something for me. I want something for me. For me. Uh, you'll get that today. But what we're actually going to do instead is say, let's just learn about who God is. Can we do that? Is that cool? Isaiah chapter 40. We'll dig in, find out what's going on, find out uh, a little bit about God's character, a little bit about his power, and a lot about his love. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is writing just after the events that I've just spoken about. And there was one more pivotal moment in history that you've got to know about from the Assyrians, okay? The Assyrians have come in. They've come to Jerusalem. They've already knocked out a couple other major cities in Israel. And they come to Jerusalem, and they say, all right, guys, we're here. We're on the doorstep of your capital city, and we are going to hold you under siege until you give up. Siege, you know what that is? It's when like a bigger army comes around your city and they wait outside the walls. They don't let anyone go in. They don't let anyone come out. And basically the idea is to starve you or you'll come out and surrender, right? It's generally very effective. Except not in this case. 
I'll tell you in a little bit what actually happened there. It's pretty incredible. But what I want to do is there's been a victory there. Uh, the Assyrians have now left. The Israelites are like, what? <laughs> they left? We were all going to die, and now we're not dead. How did that happen? And this is Isaiah speaking about God, starting in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. This is what he says. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sin. We're going to actually go through a couple more verses, but let's just pause there right there. Remember what was just happening just before this was written. The Assyrians come in. They've, they've put the nation under siege. They thought they were all going to die, and then the Assyrians left. And so Isaiah starts this phrase with the word comfort, comfort. In some reading that I was doing, I understand that the, the Hebrew word that's used there for comfort can actually mean this, to breathe a sigh of relief. You ever got pulled over by a cop because you were speeding? Like you were dead to right speeding, okay? Like you're, you're just, this wasn't like, oh, I think it's miscalibrated and I got to go get my tires changed and all kinds of excuses. Like you're like, I was speeding. It was on purpose. I was late for something. They pulled you over, right? And, and you realize you're about to get a ticket and it's going to ruin at least a day and a half of your life plus a couple hundred bucks, right? And, and then there's this moment where the cop goes, look, I get it. I get what you're going through. You're late for work. I'll let you off with a warning this time. Have you ever experienced that? I've experienced it not as many times as I wish. Um, you know what you get there? Comfort. It's that word, breathing a sigh of relief. It's like, whoo, <laughs> that was a close one. It's when your, your kid like falls out of a tree. If that's never happened to your kids, maybe there's just something wrong with me. My kids are always falling out of tall places, okay? And like, you know, kids are always about to hurt themselves, but then they don't. And you're like, whoo, comfort, comfort. As we continue reading this, cha- this, this chapter, we're going to read through to, the, to verse 5 from where we just were, so 3 through 5, or four through, 3 through 5. But we're going to draw out what I think are four qualities of God that Isaiah is going to lay out because of this relationship he has with him. And the first one is this. We actually kind of see it in this couple of verses we re- that we read because he talks about sins being forgiven and stuff like that. But we're going to see even more in verses four through, uh, 3 through 5. And this is the, the word I want you to see. Who is the God for the rest of us? The God for the rest of us is a God of holiness. A God of holiness. There's going to be four of those, okay? That's the first one. He's a God of holiness. Let's see what that means. Let's look at starting at verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, this is kind of a cryptic thing. A lot of it after this is a little more clear. But he's kind of, he's kind of saying something kind of metaphorical. If you've heard this before, it might be because it's famously a prophecy that was attributed to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, and he kind of comes through and prepares the way for Jesus. So he kind of, he kind of figuratively does some of these things, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the highway, um, every valley shall be raised, every mountain shall be made low. The idea is I'm making a path. But when the first people would have heard this, when Isaiah's audience would have heard this, they wouldn't have seen it immediately as a prophecy about someone who's coming in the future. They would have heard it literally as it is. And here's the way it works. When someone comes to your house, a dignitary, a king especially, was coming to the city, what they would do is they would make way for him. 
You know, let's make this road straight. Let's do everything we can. And in Isaiah's metaphor here, he's like, let's go, let's go crazy with it. Like, if there's a little hill there, let's dig it out. Let's make it smooth. If there's a little valley there, let's fill it in. Let's make smooth the path. As Hezekiah came to power in, uh, in Jerusalem, there was something that he started to do that was huge. See, his father had bowed down to the Assyrians. And as a result, the people in Israel, were, uh, they were worshiping the Assyrian gods. The god Baal and the god Molech and the god, goddess Asherah. And these were pagan demonic deities. In fact, to worship them, Molech, for example, you know the primary way you worship Molech? You would sacrifice children, okay? So let's not just be like, let's honor these people's customs. No, they're sacrificing children, and that's how you worship. That's why uh, I believe that these particular gods were demonic spirits that they were worshiping uh that might be crazy like this is your first time at church and like i don't even understand where but that's that's their spiritual things in the world and this is an example of it this was the type of stuff that uh was going on in israel in, in jerusalem the place where the temple is in fact hezekiah's dad had the uh the priests of the temple god's priests kind of removed and replaced them with priests that that worship these gods in fact, Hezekiah's dad actually sacrificed one of his children to the god Moloch. This is how crazy the nation of Israel had gotten before Hezekiah comes in. When Isaiah says, make straight the path, level the ground, fill in the valleys, lower the hills, that's exactly what Hezekiah had done. Hezekiah comes in and he cleans shop. He makes a path for God to come. You know what he did? He goes through the land and there's this place called high places. It's where these, uh, these, these priests of the pagan gods would go and, and they would worship. He goes and he destroys the high places. There are these statues and altars that are set up to these gods. He has them knocked down and destroyed. He has the priests put to death because they were leading the people astray. Hezekiah said, we're going to dig in and we're going to find out what God told us to do and we're going to do that as a nation. Why? Because one thing Isaiah taught Hezekiah is that God is a God of holiness. There is no room in his character for evil. One of the things that you'll see immediately when people turn their lives to God is that their lifestyle starts to alter. In many cases, change dramatically. You know why? Because one thing God does in our life is he comes and he begins to clean house. But sometimes we don't feel that comfort. We don't feel that... Uh, that And I think there's a very real reason for that. I think it's because we need to make clear the path for God. There are things in our life that are just straight up in the way between us and him. And Isaiah is teaching the people that in this. God is a God of holiness. That's the first quality of God I want us to understand today. The second one is this. As we keep reading, we'll see a second quality from Isaiah 40. And this is what I want to call the superiority of God. The superiority of God. God is a God of superiority. So he's a God of holiness, and he's a God of superiority. I don't know how else to say it, but God is big, okay? He's really, really big. Um, uh, in, in verses 6 through 8, we're just going to skip through, but one thing Isaiah says is that people are like grass in a field, and the righteous things that we do, they, they might be seen kind of like flowers. Like, oh, look, look what they did. Look what they did. And then it says God's breath can blow it all down. <laughs> like, that's just how big he, are, he is. We're like grass, and he is just like this 
hurricane gale force wind compared to us. And so this comparison thing goes back and forth. Isaiah, he speaks kind of metaphorically, and so he's going to keep on going. Uh, I love uh, Dr. James Smith. Uh, not the James Smith that goes to church here. Some of you guys know him. Uh, this is not, it's not, did you write a book, by the way? Okay, so this is by Dr. James Smith uh, out of Florida, and he's a commentator that writes about the book of Isaiah, and he writes this about chapter 40. He says, the primary aim of this chapter is to demonstrate that Israel's God is superior to anything else that might be prone to worship. Okay, and so let's just read some of those things starting in verse 12 listen to a few of the metaphors that Isaiah uses he says this in verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand have you ever like scooped water to like drink out of or wash your faith with he says who has measured the waters as in the oceans this is God okay he goes set up the bigness of God who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on a scale and the hills on a balance. Like God has no need for hands or baskets or scales, okay? This is a metaphor. This is to show the supremacy and the superiority and the bigness of God. Keep going, verse 13. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? It, it, that's an interesting section for me because I think so often we try to educate God, you know. Let me just tell you what's going on in my life right now. Or we'll, we'll make deals with God. Listen, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. And Isaiah's like, God's not asking for your advice or your permission. He's God. This is the bigness of God. And then I, this verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop, of, a drop in a bucket. He doesn't even say the nations are like a bucket. He's like the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales, and he weighs the islands as if they were fine dust. There are over seven billion people on our planet, and to God, it's like a bucket full of sand. Now, when we step back and think about the grandiose size of God, it begins to put stuff in perspective. Why does it matter that God is for us? Well, wow. That's a powerful force to have for you. So what should a human's response to that be? Like what, should, what should we do? In reality, if a force that big just kind of walked in the room right now, if that was even a thing that could happen, let's pretend that God could just walk into the room. Like, what do we even do? Like, do we, is it a fire drill at that point? Like, do we, like, find the nearest exit? Do you, is it a buddy system? Do you cower on the floor and cry? What do you do? I'm just, I'm just speculating. Like, what, what do you even do? That's this amazingly big, big response that we could even need to have to God. Well, I think that our response to God should be, on a scale, the same as it would be to anyone of power and influence. Think about the famous people you've met, the influential people you've met. If you've met a former president of the United States or, or a professional athlete or, or someone influential, well, what do you do? If they're coming to your house, what do you do? Well, you clean up, right? And, and, and you might make them some, some special things. You might find out on Google like what their special favorite snack is. You might cater something out of, out of town. Like you're going to like take a shower, right, and like make your bed, things like that. This is all I'm saying. We give them special treatment, right? If, if there's someone that you really care for, some, I mean, even if your grandma comes to the house, right, you give them special treatment. Now, if you scale that up to God, you would think that that special treatment would continue, right? And there's a word for that, and it's a churchy word, and it's a religious word, but it's a really, really good word. The word for that is worship. 
Let me tell you what the word worship means. You, you might have known. We talk about it a lot. The word worship means, uh, it, it, you could kind of say it like this, worth-ship. The idea is assigning worth to something. If you're worshiping something, you're saying, I assign worth to that thing. It has value. I'm going to give it all the value that it deserves. And so when you talk about something like God and coming, uh, worship is indeed taking time out of your schedule to come and gather together and sing songs of praise to him, right? Worship would be, let me take a look at my finances. Am I, am I, am I investing in the things of this world or the things of God's kingdom? Let me take a look at my family. Am I, you know, leading them towards you or away from you? Like, this is all forms of worship, showing him his worth to us. So what is God's, uh, so if God is, is holy, right, and God is supreme, Now, I think the third quality that we can really see, and and Isaiah's about to get into it, is that he's a God-deserving worship. He is. He's a God-deserving worship. Going back to our passage, look at verse 16. Uh, It looks like it would take more than we could ever pull together to actually worship God. Uh, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time before we read it. He talks here about Lebanon, okay? Lebanon was, was famous for these forests that they had, and they had these Trees in America, you might look at the redwood forest, or even in North Carolina, we had these amazing, you know, forests in the western parts of our state. And people would go to Lebanon, and they would take these trees, and they would build boats out of them. They would build uh, palaces out of them, and great fortified walls. And cities from all over uh, the, the area would come to Lebanon to get these trees. Okay, so just think trees, think lots of trees, think big trees, and listen to what Isaiah says in verse sixteen about worshiping God. He says, "Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires." Like if you were going to burn wood and make an altar to God, Lebanon doesn't really have enough wood to cover what God's worth really is. He says, nor are its animals enough for burnt offerings. Verse 17, before him, before God, all the nations, they're like nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Not that God doesn't care about us, but on a scale here. God is the God worthy of worship. And this would have been even more potent for our original hearers. You remember the city had just been under siege by the Assyrians, okay? Those people were terrified. The leader of the Assyrians threatened to kill everyone. He actually stood outside the city walls and screamed over the walls, I hope you can hear me in there because when this is all over, this and this and this and this is what I'm going to do to you. You can read about it in the book of 2 Kings in the Bible. It's, It's gruesome. And he just says, this is what's going to happen to you. The people inside the walls, they're scared. But what's crazy is, the nation of Israel ends up winning that fight. Let me tell you what happened. This is crazy. The Bible says, so Hezekiah begins to worship. He goes into the temple, and he begins to worship God. And he says to God, I will do whatever it takes. I will never turn from you. I won't forsake you. I am going to worship you, even if it means the Assyrians are going to take us out. But Father, will you please deliver us today? Check out what happens. This is in in 2 Kings chapter 18. You can go read the whole story. Totally recommend you do it this week. The Bible says that an angel of the Lord came in the night and put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the next morning, the remaining soldiers woke up, and they were totally freaked out. (laughs) They're like, whoa, most of us are not alive anymore. And you know what the Assyrian army did? They packed up. And they left. And I've got to share this. Like, that might sound like some kind of a religious hocus-pocus, like, fairy tale. I've got to share this. This is one of the many places in the Bible that can be validated by other archaeological and historical accounts. Um, there, there, there are accounts from the Assyrian nation. There's this big, um, this big tablet called Sennacherib's 
uh, prism. Okay, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And what it does is it lists all his conquests. You can find this, look it up on the internet. You can go, it's a Wikipedia page about it. Sennacherib's prism, I think is what it's called. Uh, and there's, a, and, and there's a list of all the battles and all the cities that he took and conquered. And it's like, and we went to this city, and we put it under siege, and on this day we conquered it. And we put this city under siege, and on this day we conquered it. And we put Because what they were doing was showing just how many cities they took over. And then it says this, we went to Jerusalem, and we put it under siege, and then we just left. It's historical. That's not the Bible. That's something from somewhere else. If that gives you any faith in the validity of the Bible, it's crazy. And according to the Bible's account, 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers were put down that day. God is supreme. And God is worthy of worship. I think that something inside us looks to fulfill that desire to worship. God created us to worship. And I think that's why we look to so many different things. I think that's why we invest our lives in our jobs and our families and, and, and in making our houses the most perfect place. Not that we're worshiping those things. Maybe you are in some of the areas of your life going too far. But, but really, it's like, I just want to, I want to value something. I want something to mean more to me. People spend their whole life looking for purpose. You see, the Assyrians had influenced the Jews to worship idols made of gold and silver back in Hezekiah's dad's day. Verse 20 says this, a person too poor to present such an offering as gold or silver, this is what they would do, would select woods that would not rot. They would look for skilled workers to set up an idol that will not topple. Isn't that what we all want? An idol that won't topple? I mean, I'm not trying to cross lines between religion and government and all this stuff, but like, isn't that why we have elections Isn't that why there's this whole thing going on with the primaries right now? Because everybody wants to put their person on top who they believe won't topple. Isn't that why we always want a different relationship or a different job or a different setting in life? Because we want something that won't topple. But there's only one thing that won't topple. It's the supreme, holy God that's worthy of worship. Let's jump ahead to verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Is God talking. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Again, more of that metaphor is just talking about how big God is. Because of, how great, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creators of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. God did all this. God is holy. He's superior. He's deserving of worship. And here's where I'm baffled. Why does he care about me? Did you hear what I said? Think about it. Why does he care about me? You ever meet a famous person? And they were like, hey, cool. They kind of slough you off, and you're like, that guy was a jerk. I'm like, really? That guy's talked to four million people today. He's not a jerk. He's tired. Why does God care about me? And how could I know that he cares about me? Me, someone who has sin in my life, someone who has disappointed God, someone who sometimes in my life have turned my back on him knowing that this is wrong and do it anyway. Why would God care about me? Why would God care about you? Why would God care about us? Why would God be for the rest of us? It doesn't make any sense. 
In the 18th century, there was a philosophy about God. Uh, it, it arose among many intellectual people of the time. It was called deism. You ever heard of deism? Uh, many of the founding fathers of our nation were deists. And the idea was this. Uh, guys like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Um, the idea of deism is this. Uh, they thought of God like a clockmaker. Okay? And he's a masterful clockmaker. And clocks are ornate and they're detailed. So God makes this clock and it's beautiful. And this is what he does. He winds it up and he sets it on a shelf to run down. The idea of deism is that there is a God and he is uh, holy and he is supreme. And he is worthy of worship. But he doesn't really care about us. We're on the shelf, we're the clock that's running down. That's deism. But there was a verse from Isaiah chapter 40 that we skipped over. We skipped over several verses. But there was one from Isaiah 40, something that we learned from Isaiah, that teaches us something about God that is so powerful, that is so affirming, that I hope you can leave from this room today being completely encouraged about. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to look at verse 11. It's just one sentence. Well, yeah, it's a long sentence. It says this. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. To think about this almighty, supreme God deserving of worship, taking time for a little lamb, it says a lot about the character of God, the type of person that he is. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible you know it. Many of you do. Even if you didn't go to church your whole life, you're like, I've seen it at football games. John three sixteen says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son Jesus. God became a human named Jesus because though he is so big, so supreme, so deserving of worship, he said, but my prized creation is humans. I love them. I created them in my image. And I love them. And I love them so much that even though they turn their back on me, I'm going to go to the world and give my life for them. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. And then if they believe in me, they can have eternal life with me. Another one of my favorite verses comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 6. It says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And three chapters later, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Do we have that one? It says this. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, then who could be against us? God is for the rest of us. And the way that we know it is this, this third thing that we learn about God. Is that God is a God of love. I mean, the fourth thing. God is a God of love. Yes, he's a God of holiness. And he desires that from us too. And he wants us to make straight the path and clear our lives out for him. But because of Jesus, he comes along and he helps us with that. We're not responsible for all the digging to cover up the valley. He comes in and he does the heavy lifting for us. God is a God of supremacy. But he gives us a response. He says, you can worship me. Do that. And in the book of John, it says that God is love. It's not a description of God. It's not something God does. It says God is love. It's like his essence. 
It's what he's made of. In fact, I don't know that we would know or understand love if God was not love. God is a God of love. God, for the rest of us, isn't about you and me. It's not about our mess. It's about him and his holiness and his supremacy and his worship and his love. And because of his love, God is for your hurting. He's for your dysfunctional family. He's for your hypocrisy. He's for your doubts and your fears. He's for your addiction. He's for your hang-ups. He's for your hurt. He's for your bad day. He's for all the things that have kept you away from him. And he says, listen, just come, come to me. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's pray to that God right now. God, you are worthy of worship. You're holy. And we stand here, a group of people who have made mistakes and we've let you down. Yet in the midst of it all, you give us forgiveness and you give us love. And in all that, Father, I thank you that you are for the rest of us. You're for the things in our life that hurt. And you fill the gap for us. Father, I just pray that as we leave from here today, You'll give us a sense of knowing who you are, that, that we'll leave here knowing, I just want to learn more about that powerful God who loves me. Lord, you didn't have to love us. You didn't have to give us or pay us any mind, but you choose to. And for that, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.